as well. Well, uh, that being said, uh, I hope you found Revelation chapter 3. We have uh, come close, we're, we're coming close now to the end of the seven messages that Jesus gave to the seven churches uh, who Revelation was written to. John sent Revelation to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and only two of these seven messages contain nothing negative in them, uh, no rebukes. Uh, one was the, church, uh, the message to the church in Smyrna, which we looked at a few weeks ago, and then the other is the message to the church in Philadelphia that we're going to look at today. And uh, so with that, let's look now at Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin by reading together verses 7 through 13. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. The Holy Spirit says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we've heard you speak to us already in the reading of your word, and we ask that you would continue your teaching ministry through the Holy Spirit now. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit that I might speak the very utterances of God and serve with the strength that you supply. I pray that you would fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit, that we might have our eyes open to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would change us and make us more like Christ, that you would teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would work for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, in uh, a room like this, uh, one of the cool things about a local church gathering is we have people who are at all different stages of Christianity, all different stages of the Christian life. Uh, there are some who have not trusted in Christ yet. 
who are here today. There are some who have uh, just have a newfound faith in Christ. And if, if, if you're newer to the faith, if you're you know, more recently trusted in Christ, um, you know, there's a kind of a zeal that comes with that newness, a, 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 a zeal and an enthusiasm and a boldness of just, I want to tell everybody about Jesus, and I can't wait to devour the Bible, and you, you, know, you can't convince me that, that, um, that this isn't true, and I got to go tell everybody, and nothing can stop me, and I'm ready to storm hell with a water pistol. And then there's also some of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time. And I'm not going to say you look tired, uh, because that would, be, that would be insulting. But I know you're probably tired. Because the more you follow Christ, the more you walk with Christ, the more you walk against the current of this world and go against the grain of this world... It just gets tiring and exhausting. Uh, the, the longer you have to keep on trusting with faith and not sight, the more it just becomes taxing. The more you are opposed, questioned, the more it gets exhausting. And so I wonder... When following Jesus gets hard, what keeps you going? Or, or maybe if you're not in that place where it's really hard and tiring, when you do get to that place, because you will, what will you look to to keep you going? When those seeds of doubt are planted in your head, how do you plant your heart firmly in the truth? When others who claim to follow Christ judge you as wrong or radical or extreme, how do you stay faithful to God's Word? Truly His people. It's the Christians in Philadelphia that are truly His people. And we just need to remember as followers of Christ that no matter what anyone else says about us, we can rest in what Christ says about us because He is the holy and true one. Uh, this title also speaks to Jesus' trustworthiness. In this passage, Jesus makes several promises, and we can cling to Jesus' promises because He is the holy and true one. He will keep His word to us. So He is the holy and true one. And then second, He identifies Himself as the one who has the key of David. The key of David. Now, already in Revelation, we saw a similar phrase to this. Uh, back in Revelation 1.18, uh, Jesus said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So it's similar to that, but really this is actually a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22, which says this, And uh, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut and he shall shut, and none shall open. So uh, God is speaking those words in that passage, and he's speaking them to a man named Eliakim. God was going to give this man, Eliakim, the power to determine who could go in and out of the presence of the king who was in the line of David. And in our passage, Jesus is speaking. He's the final king from the line of David, and he says he himself is now the one who determines who has access 
to his presence. He has the key to let people in to the presence of the king. So in light of this identity, look at what Jesus says in the first part of verse 8 to this church. He says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So get this, the one who has authority to open the door and to let us in to the presence of the king looks at his people and he says, the door is open for you. This is our hope if we trust in Christ. Because of our sin, the door should be shut to all of us. You need to understand that if you've not trusted in Christ, as your Savior and your Lord, right now the door is closed to God for you because of your sin. It is closed. And there is nothing you can do to unlock that door on your own and open that door on your own to get you into the presence of God. The only way anybody can get in that door, can go through that door and be in the presence of God and know the creator of the universe is what Jesus has done in taking the key of David and unlocking the door and opening it by his death and resurrection. When Jesus died, he died as a substitute for us, for sinners. He took our sin on ourselves, that sin that separated us and closed the door to us into God's presence. Jesus paid for that sin himself. In the moment that he died, the curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom, symbolically showing that Jesus' death opened up the door into the very presence of God for all who trust in Jesus' death. Anyone who trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord has an open door into the presence of God. If you have never trusted in Christ, you need to hear this today, that the door to God can be opened to you if you will trust in Jesus. And if you have trusted in Jesus, let me remind you what Christ has done for you. He has done what you could not do for yourself. He has done the impossible, and he has opened up the the door to heaven with the key of David so that you can know God. You have access to the greatest treasure humanity can know, our creator himself. And that is why we can keep going. That's why we can keep holding on, because we know Christ. We have access to the king. This is how we can face opposition and tribulation. This is how we can patiently endure Staying faithful is hard, but I have an open door to the king of the universe. Yes, people are ostracizing me, and people are excluding me, but Jesus welcomes me into his presence. This world is broken, this world is painful, but I have access to heaven. So hold on to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Trust his testimony, trust his promises, delight in his presence, hold on to Christ. 
Second, hold on through opposition. Hold on through opposition. Jesus praises the church in Philadelphia for their endurance. Look at what he says in verse 8 on either side of this promise of the open door. Look at what he says in verse 8. He says, I know your works. And then he goes on. He says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So as we've seen, when Jesus says, I know your works, it's not always a good thing. But in this case, it is. Jesus says, I know that you have little power. Isn't it encouraging that he is speaking and he recognizes this is a church. It's not a mega church. This is not a church with a, a large influence in its community. This was not the booming, growing church that everyone in town was talking about. But we must remember that success does not consist in influence. We as a church need to be content to have little power. The power and influence of a church are not what catches Jesus' attention. What Jesus notices about this church is they have kept his word and have not denied his name. This is what Jesus calls us to. He's not looking for size. He's not looking for influence. He's not looking for power. He just wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to keep his word. The question that we need to be asking is not, how can we be more influential in our community or in our society? Uh, the question is not, how do we acquire more power or become more influential? Instead, we need to ask, how can we be faithful to the gospel? How can we be more biblical, not more powerful? How can we be biblical in, in our teaching? How can we be biblical in our worship? How can we be biblical in our structure? How can we be biblical in the way that we treat people? Jesus wants us to keep his word, and he wants us to be loyal to his name, not denying his name, but being loyal to his name. We need to ask as a church, not how can we promote our name, but instead, how can we promote the name of Jesus? How can we keep our allegiance to Jesus uncompromised? That's what he praises the church in Philadelphia for. He says, I know you have little power, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. And Jesus encourages that even though they're a church with little power. Well, this church in Philadelphia was faithful, uh, and what's remarkable about their faithfulness is they were faithful even as they were facing opposition. Jesus addresses this opposition in verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The church was facing opposition from the Jewish community in Philadelphia. Jesus used this same description back in Revelation 2.9 to describe the Jews who were slandering the church in Smyrna. These were Jews by ethnicity, but not Jews in terms of salvation because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Paul says in Romans 2, 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. 
And again, in Galatians 3.29, he says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So that's why Jesus is able to say here that they say that they are Jews, but they are not. So in the early days of Christianity, uh, the, the church would still, the Christians would still go to the synagogue. They would go and attend the synagogue. But when they wouldn't stop preaching Jesus as the Messiah, eventually the Jews would excommunicate these Christians from the synagogue. They would exclude them from gathering with the synagogue. They would, uh, they would close the door to them, as it were. And uh, it was because they thought that they were not real Jews. Uh, these Jews in Philadelphia thought they were God's beloved people because of their ethnicity. But here, Jesus, the holy and true one, gives the real truth. He says, they say that they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. They are not God's people. They belong to Satan, he says. Jesus says all this to make it even uh, more stark, he says all this to a church, most likely, which was made up of predominantly Gentile believers, Gentiles who trusted in Jesus. And he looks at this church, people who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah, and he says, you are the ones that I love. And then he goes even further, and the, the true one makes this amazing promise when he says, I will make them, the Jews, come and bow down before your feet. Now, this was not the first time that God made this promise. This was a promise that God had made repeatedly. Uh, in the Old Testament, he made it to Israel, and he made this promise through the prophets about something that would happen in the last days. For example, God says in Isaiah 60, verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So in Isaiah's day, God promised the Jews, in terms of salvation, the Jews, that the Gentiles, outsiders in terms of salvation, uh, that these Gentile nations who opposed them would one day come and bow down and acknowledge that God does in fact love them. So what's going on here in Revelation 3 is something that is tragically ironic because these so-called Jews in Philadelphia who reject Christ are actually Gentiles in terms of salvation. They're outsiders in terms of salvation. And Jesus says he's going to make them come bow down to the church, the real Jews in terms of salvation. And Jesus will show those who rejected him who his true beloved people are. It's those who trusted in him as Messiah, who are both Jews and Gentiles by ethnicity. So these Jews in Philadelphia may have been able to kick the Christians out of the synagogue, but it's the church who has an open door into the king's presence because of the one who has the key of David. So you know, as we seek to be faithful to Scripture, and as we seek to be loyal to Jesus, we will face opposition too. And we must keep holding on even through opposition. We will face opposition from people who say they 
are really God's people and we are outsiders. Now, in our context, we might not deal with the synagogue of Satan. We might deal with the church of Satan. We might be told by people who claim to be Christians, well, what you're doing is not real Christianity. That's not really what Jesus would do. That's not really what Jesus taught. Actually, your version of Christianity is, is against Christ. It's un-Christ-like. And effectively, as we seek to follow Jesus faithfully according to his word, we might be ostracized as if we're not really God's beloved people. If that happens, what do we do? Do we try to get more power, influence, change things around us so that everyone agrees with us? No. According to Revelation, that's not how you conquer. We don't conquer by increasing our power or gaining enough influence to change public opinion. So what do we do? Just stay faithful. Just stay faithful and trust that in the end, Jesus will vindicate us. For now, we can be criticized. For now, we can be ostracized. We can be looked down upon. But the truth will come out in the end. Jesus will make everything right. So just keep holding on, even through opposition. Third, hold on through trials. Hold on through trials. The true one makes another promise in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So again, Jesus commends this church for being keepers of his word, not just hearers, but keepers of his word. And he specifically calls it my word about patient endurance. You know, the gospel is the story of Jesus' own patient endurance. And it's that word that we are to cling to even as we patiently endure. Jesus says, because they have kept his word, he will keep them from the hour of trial. So this hour of trial, he says, is coming on the whole world, but its purpose is to try a specific group of people who he refers to as those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a term we're going to see all throughout Revelation. It's a term that John uses to, to refer to those in the world who do not follow Jesus. In other words, unbelievers. For example, Revelation 13 verse 8 describes all who dwell on earth as everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So this hour of trial is coming on the whole world, but God's purpose in it is to try unbelievers. And here is Jesus' promise to those who do believe the gospel. I will protect you. I will protect you. Now, we, under, we need to understand, though, 
what Jesus is promising here is not that the church will be removed from this hour of trial. Instead, he's promising to preserve his people through this coming tribulation. He's promising to protect his people spiritually as they experience the hour of trial that is meant to try unbelievers. Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep, same word, keep them from the evil one. Jesus' goal is not to take us out of this world or to remove us from trial, but to protect us as we live in this world. And this is what we're going to see all throughout Revelation. John is going to go on to describe visions of this hour of trial and God's judgment experienced by the whole world, but he'll show time and time again how believers are preserved spiritually, how they're spiritually protected even as we go through tribulation. Uh, For example, uh, turn a couple pages ahead to me to Revelation 7 and verses 2 and 3. John is about to see a vision of God's wrath being poured out, but first in Revelation 7 verses 2 and 3, he says this, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God's people are not taken from the earth. They are sealed while still on the earth, and thus they are protected. Uh, Flip another page or two over to Revelation 9 and verse 4. In this passage, uh, demonic beings are told to torment people, but they're given this limitation in verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. God's people on earth are sealed and thus protected. Uh, This is just like whenever God sent plagues on Egypt. He did not remove his people from Egypt, but at the same time, their experience of the plagues was very different from that of the Egyptians' experience of the plagues. They were protected through the plagues of God's judgment on Egypt. It's also like what God promised in Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. This is Jesus' promise to his people. He will preserve us. He will protect us. Even as he brings trials upon us. world. As Christians, we will face tribulation in this world because we are living in a world under the judgment of God. We will face hardship. We may even face death, but here's our hope. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown." 
That crown. We saw this crown in Revelation 2.10. It's the crown of life. The crown is eternal life. If we keep holding on to Jesus, if we cling to the gospel, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that can take away our eternal life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 35 to 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then Paul says this, No, in all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Our hope in the midst of tribulation is not that we will be spared tribulation. Our hope is that nothing, not even tribulation, can separate us from the love of God. He will protect us. He will preserve us. He will bring us safely home. So when you face trials, when you face the suffering of this broken world, when you face the difficulty of living in a world under the judgment of God, keep holding on even through trials. Finally, hold on till you're home. Hold on till you're home. The true one ends this message with yet another promise in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So this is a promise for the one who conquers, just like we heard the word repeated there in Romans 8. This is a promise of the one who conquers, who holds fast what they have until the end. And this promise has two parts to it. First, he says he will make the one who conquers a pillar in the temple. A pillar in the temple. Now, this idea of temple is all throughout Scripture. The temple is the place where God dwells with his people. Uh, The Garden of Eden was a kind of a temple. Uh, Then God dwelt with Israel in a a temporary temple first, the tabernacle, until eventually a permanent temple was built. Now in the New Testament, the church is called the temple uh, on earth, but we still don't experience the fullness of God's plan for the temple just yet. Throughout the New Testament, and especially in Revelation, uh, in addition to the church on earth being called a temple, God is often pictured as being in a heavenly temple, a temple in heaven. And we've already seen some of this imagery in Revelation, how Jesus is the high priest in the temple, uh, how the churches are the lampstands in the temple. Uh, In just a couple weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. And if you're familiar with those chapters, you know that John sees a vision of the heavenly temple 
in those chapters. And all throughout Revelation, we're going to see uh, the different judgments of God that are poured out on the earth are sent from his heavenly temple. But then, at the end of Revelation, after seeing this temple in heaven, temple in heaven, temple in heaven, church on earth, temple in heaven, at the very end of the book, John sees heaven come down to earth. Specifically, he sees New Jerusalem come down out of heaven. And he says this in Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. So in the end, there isn't going to be a a physical structure of a temple on the new earth. In the end, the whole new earth is the temple because everywhere on the new earth, God is dwelling with his people. The veil is torn. The whole earth is going to be the holy of holies where we will dwell with God in his temple, so to speak, forever. In that day, the one who conquers will experience what John describes in Revelation 7. Go, go back with me one, once more to Revelation 7 verses 13 to 15. Revelation 7 verses 13 to 15. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And catch this in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, And serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The opposition will be over. The tribulation will be behind us. And the one who has the key of David will open up the door to the temple of God's presence. And there we will be pillars, permanent, unmovable fixtures in God's house. We will never go out of it. That's Jesus' promise to the one who clings to the gospel. Pillars in the temple. Second, Jesus promises to the one who conquers a new name. Uh, He promises specifically to write on the one who conquers the name of God, the name of the city of God, and then his own new name. And this is a statement of how Jesus identifies with his people. He, He stamps this name on those who belong to him. Jesus says about the one who conquers, he belongs to me. He says about his people, that is a citizen of my city. He says, that is a person who belongs to my God. As John sees the new Jerusalem, he says this about God's people in Revelation 22 and verse 4. Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The one 
who has the key of David will open for us a permanent home in new Jerusalem. So keep holding on. Keep holding on. Because in Christ, we have an eternal home. We will be pillars in the temple. We'll be residents of new Jerusalem. Jesus will be our forever home. And as we hold on, as we wait for our eternal home, remember this world is not your home. When the familiarity of home on this earth is taken away from you, remember, we're not home yet. When the comforts of home are taken away from you on this earth, remember, we're not home yet. When you feel increasingly like a foreigner or stranger in this world, remember, that's how it's supposed to feel. We're not home yet. Keep staying faithful. Keep holding on and hold on until you're home. When following Jesus gets hard, Jesus will keep you going. When following Jesus gets hard, Jesus will keep you going. Through opposition, through trials, remember who he is. Remember what he has done for you. Remember what he is doing for you. And remember what he promises to do for you in the future. Keep holding on. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.